Um, this morning, I don't think I have anything up behind me. Oh, I do. So uh, we want to talk about spiritual fitness from 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, I, I'm not sure there's going to be anything up on the, um, up on the uh, overhead for verses, but we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 to 11. So um, <clears throat> this is a little bit of an old quote, but uh, it's relevant to what I want to say this morning. In, in the pastoral renewal um, article from February 85, that's how old it is, um, the author says this, I met a young man not long ago who dives for exotic fish for aquariums. He told me that one of the most popular aquarium fish is the shark. He explained that if you catch a small shark and confine it, it will stay a size proportionate to the aquarium you put it in. Sharks can be six inches long yet fully matured. But if you turn them loose in the ocean, they grow to their normal length of eight feet. That is what that is like what happens to some Christians. As a pastor, and this guy writing in this article, I've seen some of the cutest little six-inch Christians who swim around in a little puddle. You can look at them and comment on how fine they are, but if you were to put them out in the lar- into lo- the larger arena of life and into the broad view of a whole creation, they might become great. I want to start with this prayer from this article, actually. God, help us not to be confined to a little puddle out of insecurity, but instead to see that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He made us, and if we will both have internal integrity and relate ourselves to the larger structures in the ways he has ordained, we will be able to serve him according to a holistic vision of his purpose and truth. Lord, I pray that you would just anoint your word this morning and that you would speak to us from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I hope that uh, this Sunday I might challenge you to get out of the puddle you may be in. You may or may not be in a puddle, but if you're in one, it's time to get out and to grow in Christ as a Christian, to mature into all that he has for you. I'm not saying you can do it just right after one sermon, but I hope it's sort of like a, an, a kick in the pants, if you would, to get past maybe where you are. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I've been dismayed at times at the little growth I've seen uh, from so many who never seem to get out of the fishbowl, if you would, of, of their walk with Christ. Um, one of the plagues, I believe, of the Southern Baptist churches is we have a lot of immature believers. And consequently, there's issues trying to deal with all of them. Not that you can, we can all be mature, but there's this whole process of growth. And if we ignore that growth, if we just get in and feel comfortable where we are, we end up in sort of a mess. So I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We, I've been taking you through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're, we're in verse uh, 6 to 11. And I'd actually like to read that. I don't know, you won't have that up there, but if you read along with me. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, 
nourished in the words of faith and of the, and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things command and teach. Now, Paul is exhorting Timothy, his young protege, um, on how to pastor uh, the church that he has there in Ephesus. And um, he, he wants him, first of all, to instruct the believers. A pastor's responsibility, first and foremost, I believe, is to preach and teach the Word of God. And so he ins- he's to instruct the brethren in, in the things that have been discussed up to this point. We've, over the, well, I've been gone almost a month, but we've looked at the different parts of, of um, the church government and, and of the church setup between the deacons and the elders. So he's to instruct them in that, but he's also to instruct them in how to recognize, he calls it doctrines of demons. And we're to actually be wise about that. Uh, last night we had our small group at, a, uh, at our home. We, we hosted every couple of weeks from uh, Mount Helena. And so uh, I led the group and I asked them, um, what are doctrines of demons? You ever thought about that? What are doctrines of demons? We had a, a very lively discussion for about an hour. And I believe we came to this point. Doctrines are, of demons are anything that hedge or step away from the teachings of Scripture. This book is what we order our life around. And if we get sideswiped by some of these different odd doctrines that come out and don't know the Word of God to compare it to, we will get taken up in these doctrines of demons that he talks about in this. So, again, verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about there is not the clergy as such. He doesn't use a word that signifies the clergy. The word he uses is the same word he uses for deacon, and that is a servant. So a servant of the church is one who instructs the church in godliness, in in right living. Um, it's, It's the one who is a true minister of the church who serves through good teaching that will result in the nourishment of the saints. So Paul is calling Timothy to be a servant of the church through his teaching. That's what a pastor does. He's to be a servant of the church through his teaching. He's also alluding to the fact that all the servants of the church, not just ministers, otherwise he would have used the Greek word for minister. What he's saying here is that all of us are to be servants of the church, and consequently, the Lord, and the way we prepare ourselves for this is by nourishing ourselves in the Word of God. This teaching was to come from the words of faith. I, I thought that was an interesting uh, choice of words there. 
The New King James um, translates it words of faith. We have um, different Christian movements that are called words of faith. That's not, he's not talking about a movement. He's talking about the objective word of truth. That is the word of God itself. These are not subjective in that they're based on feelings, but they're objective in that they are based on the impeccable and awesome character of God and what he has revealed about himself in the word of God. Good doctrine refers to the objective teaching of the word of God that leads to faith in Christ salvation, and then knowledge of himself. God wants us to know about him. He wants us to draw near to him. And we can do it as we understand and grow in our comprehension of the word of God. I think I've quoted Ray Stedman here before. Ray Stedman was the um, pastor of Palo Alto Bible Church in, uh, right outside Stanford University in California. And he's actually a Mon Montana native. I believe he was raised over close to Missoula. Went to the same seminary I went to. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, exegete. He's dead now. But um, he said this. In order to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, the apostle says you need certain things. And the first admonition Paul gives Timothy is, watch what you are feeding on. Be nourished on the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have followed. Nourishment is what he's talking about here. So we ask the question, what are you nourished by? That is the question this passage raises for us. What do you feed daily on? What do you put in your mind? What is your habitual input in your life? He lists off these things. Uh, the sports page, soap operas, the Dow Jones averages, TV movies, bestseller novels, I would add to that something from the internet, <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> you know, uh, Instagram, YouTube. I, I, I'm a YouTube addict. I listen to sermons and all kinds of stuff on YouTube. But is that, is that the main feeding in your life? He goes on to say, if any of those things are your daily diet, then I can guarantee you will be a spiritually undernourished servant of Jesus Christ. Because the apostle makes clear that what you feed on is what is going to determine how effective you become. He goes on to say this, I do not want anyone to eliminate any of these things as though they are wrong. Not one of them is wrong in itself. We are not to eliminate them, but we are to regulate them. There's the issue of balance in the Christian life. That is the point Paul makes. Regulate them as things that can be very dangerously distracting to us and often too easily controlling of our thoughts. The apostle urges Timothy to give himself instead to that which really feeds his spiritual life. And that's good doctrine. That's good Bible study. That's being in the word of God on a regular basis. I hope that all of you have a quiet time. I don't, I don't know any of your um, personal habits, but I hope you spend at least some time every day taking in from the Word of God. Whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, I've, 
I'm, a, I'm retired now and I can take more time and I love to take time just sitting in God's presence with his word open on my lap. I read through the Bible every year. I'd encourage you to do that. There's all kinds of apps you can get. I, I'm reading it on my uh, phone. Um, I have the last couple of years. I read a different translation every year. I would encourage you to do that. You'll garner all kinds of things that will help you and encourage you in life and will bless you. You'll, you'll grow in spiritual strength. That which feeds our spiritual life is words of faith and good doctrine. Do you know doctrine? I hope all here know something about the Bible. You at least know what the Gospels are. I'm being a little facetious here, okay, so don't mistake me. <laughs> you know that an apostle did not marry an epistle? And I hope you do not think that Sodom and Gomorrah are husband and wife. But do you know what it means to be a part of the new covenant? You guys are Presbyterians. I hope you, I hope you got a, a good grasp on that. Do you know how to glory in the cross? Do you understand what it means to be a disciple in the demands of discipleship? Do you know what it means to die to the flesh and live for the Spirit? Do you understand how to take up your cross and follow after Christ? Do you understand the process of sanctification and your need to be sanctified? Can you tell me what the atonement is and how Christ was our atonement? Could you give a basic explanation of the Trinity? These are just some of the doctrines of the Bible that should be second nature to you. They don't come automatically. It takes time and effort and study to grab a hold of them. Note, we're to feed and to follow. <clears throat> Look what he says again in verse 6. He says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed. As we learn Scripture, we're to implement it in our lives and then follow its guidance. We're to be obedient to it. Again, Ray Stedman said this. I love this quote. I'm, this is a great quote. He says, you hold in your hands the greatest book ever written, the most amazing book in all the world, the only place in all humanity, in all human history, where you are given the bedrock, the undiluted truth about life. The Word of God gives you the insights of God into life, the explanation of who you are, what God intended you to be, and what will fulfill you. No book in all of history is more important to learn, to feed upon, than the Word of God. It's a big book. It takes a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of thinking and meditating to grasp what it says. But when you do, it will change your life. It will lead you into fullness, freedom, liberty, and beauty. That is what the Bible is for. So to feed upon this word is tremendously significant and important. That is why Paul stresses this with Timothy, reminding him of it. And I would encourage you and exhort you and 
and, and challenge you. Get in the Word of God. If you're not in there daily, do it. Get back into it. It's the anchor of your life. Do you know why the public education system was started in America? Public schools, they called them common schools back in the early 1800s. Are you aware of the reason that that actually started? Exactly. They wanted the children of America, they called them unruly, to learn the Bible. They wanted them to be able to read so they could read the Bible so that they would become, listen to this, I just read this this morning, so they would become good Republican citizens, not Republican Party, but we are a republic. And a republic bases its, its uh, citizenship on self-rule. And without the Bible, there is no self-rule. Look where we are today. And if we don't get a hold of this thing, it's going to get worse. That's how important this word is. It shapes cultures. It shapes civilizations. And it will shape your life too. Now in verse 7, he says this, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. Timothy and those who serve God are to be channels of God's truth to others. Consequently, they're to reject that which is not of God. He calls it old wives' fables in the New King James. Uh, What are old wives' tales? We, We sort of camped on this last night. Doctrines of demons and old wives' tales, or um, uh, that which is profane or godless. What are those things? Well, again, I would say to you that anything that departs from the Word of God, anything that takes into question the deity of Christ, that's one of the main ones in, in cults, anything that takes you away from that personal relationship with the living God, anything that takes you away from acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, All of those things are doctrines of demons. Mormonism, we have the new temple here in town. I I, I spent eight years in in a Mormon area. Mormonism is a fable. There is nothing doctrinally sound about Mormonism when you lay it next to the Scripture. Jehovah Witnesses, New Age, liberal Christianity that says that the Bible is not true. I would challenge anybody who doesn't believe the Bible, let me just sit down and talk with you. There's more reason to believe the scripture is true, that it's the inerrant, infallible word of God than just about anything else in the world. God set it there for us to grab hold of. And it is true. Our school systems now teach that it's not. They don't teach the other side. That which is godless and that which is profane go hand in hand. They should be shunned and rejected. That which is profane is worldly. It's the opposite of holy. It appeals to the flesh and not to the Holy Spirit that resides in us. Do we have old wives' tales today? Oh, we got a lot of them. Have you looked at your horoscope lately? You've fallen into an old wives' tale if you've done that. What about Nostradamus? 
Well, I got sort of interested in him 10 years ago. He had some great prophecies, but they have every one of them turned out true? No, and the Bible says if a prophet prophesies and it doesn't turn out true, then he's, not a, he's a false prophet. But if you don't know the Bible, you won't know that. How about the Da Vinci Code? Boy, that made a bunch of money for Tom Hanks and, Grant and the gang. But that was an old wives' tale. That had been around for years. It was debunked. Not long ago, I had a guy ask me about the supposed findings of the grave of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus stacked on one another, saying that the chances of those three in a grave together raises an amazing objection to the resurrection. But the Bible says 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. That's more than you need for a court of law in America. Paul now uses an athletic term <clears throat> and calls on Timothy and those who serve God to exercise themselves in godliness. That is, they have to apply themselves to it. It does not come naturally, just like having bulging mus muscles at 70 years old. You know, y'all seen all this? This is, it's not there. <laughs> not unless you work out like crazy. You have to exercise to get the build, and you have to exercise in the spirit to become godly. What does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to be godly? Godliness means a proper attitude and response towards God in your life and what he is doing around you. That is to have the proper attitude towards God in everything. It has the idea of reverence and moral earnestness. It also refers to the moral dignity and holy behavior before men. We've, by and large in our culture, we've lost that. Did you know that in the, our initial America, it was against the law to cuss in public? We turned on a movie the other night, thought it would be a good one, and within five minutes there were so many cuss words, I won't go into, we turned it off. And it was supposed to be about uh, the old west in America. They didn't cuss a whole lot in the Old West. I'm sorry, they didn't do that. Did you know that George Washington would, would put a man in irons if he cussed? Because he felt like that if that happened, God's blessing would not be on their army? The Greek word literally means wholeness, balanced, With the spirit being nourished and fed, the soul is in order at that point when you're in godliness. The, whole, the body is kept healthy and strong. So when you become godly, you become whole, or you literally become what God created you to be in relationship with him. It's, it's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing to seek out godliness. Or holiness. Holiness is sort of a, a synonym of it, if you would. Holiness means pure, undivided. It has a, a meaning as well of being whole. I used to teach my people, now listen to this, holiness leads to, God, uh, to happiness. You believe that? Holiness leads to happiness. What does our culture teach? Our culture teaches sin 
leads to happiness. Which is it? Holiness leads to happiness. Say it with me. Holiness leads to happiness. You want to be happy? Get holy. Seek God. Confess your sins. Get right with Him. Enjoy His presence. Be active in the church. Minister to other people. Take care of of those who can't take care of themselves. If you'll do the work of of the ministry and live a right life before God, you will find happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. The second part of my sermon here is in verse 8. It says, I I called it, exercise yourself to godliness. Look at verse 8. For a bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of of the life that that now is, of that which is to come. Do you think Paul was a jogger? Do you think he worked out? I don't think so. But I do think that Paul appreciated physical uh, stamina and strength. In in one instance in uh, Acts, uh, Paul tells a group of of men that he's traveling with, he says, you guys sail around, I'm going to walk. So he walks 20 miles My guess is he was praying and seeking the Lord in his walk, trying to find out um, what God wanted him to do next. He appreciated being physically fit, but that wasn't the emphasis of his life. Bodily exercise is only good for this body. I, I call it the earth suit, this earth suit that we have, but it's fading away. Godliness is good for this life and the next life. It's good for walking with God now, making right decisions now, moving forward now. It's good for the next life in heaven in God's presence for all eternity. Godliness bestows blessings on all it touches in this life and in the life to come. For all things could be translated in all directions. Look again at verse 8, if you would. He says, or bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is, is profitable, in my translation, for all things, but it could say in all directions of your life, in every direction. What, what would that take in? Would that take in your job? Would that take in your family relationships? Would that take in your friendships? In all directions, godliness is good for you. Donald Guthrie says, Its range is immeasurably greater, for it embraces not only this life, but also the life to come. Seeking God and knowing God and spending time in His Word and understanding what He has for you and what He wants you to do is immeasurably better for you than just about anything else I could could suggest for you. Godliness leads to great advantage as one grows in their relationship with the maker and creator of all things. Paul did not wish he had time for reading, for prayer, for meditation. He didn't wish for those things. He took time. He made time for it. If we're going to be godly, we have to make that our main objective and then go for it. Respected Bible scholar D.A. Carson, he was a professor at a at Trinity Theological Seminary in Chicago. He said, people do not drift towards holiness. 
Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. It just doesn't happen. You have to take time. You have to make time to do it. Any of you guys like to watch football? Okay, good. <laughs> I was raised on the knee of a Georgia Tech man. I literally went to a, a Georgia Tech football when I, game when I was four or five years old. And my dad bought season tickets to the Atlanta Falcons when they were first franchised in 1967. I went to Atlanta Falcon games until the early 80s when the tickets got ridiculous and they never won anything. And so <laughs> we finally said, okay, enough's enough. I went to school with uh, the Taylors, um, who owned the Atlanta Falcons. I love football. I had a professor in seminary, you may have heard of him, he's written a bunch of books, used to be a speaker, he's dead now. His name was Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks, at one time, was the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, he wrote this. He said, I love to watch football. I think it was... Or he said this, I think it was Howard Hendricks that said most people who view football are overweight, out of shape, armchair quarterbacks who are only watching, not playing, watching exhausted, over-exercised, beat-up men who are in the game totally. To be a great athlete, one must discipline himself to a regular routine of exercise, diet, and strategy formation. As a football player, he must learn to block, tackle, catch, read defense, and or offense, memorize hundreds of plays so that they become second nature, obey his coach, and submit to the leadership on the field, and then work out regularly with weights, do sprint training, eat and sleep well, so one is totally prepared for game day. Y'all agree with that? You ever watched a professional athlete? I'm always amazed. They don't have any fat on them at all. <laughs> he goes on to say, To be a godly Christian, one must discipline himself to regular Bible study, prayer, service, self-examination, fellowship, sacrifice, submission to the will of others, witnessing, giving, and regular church and Sunday school attendance. To be a godly Christian is work. It takes regular discipline and it takes sticking to it. Just a side note, what does it take to backslide as a Christian? <laughs> Just stop doing any of those things. Stop reading your Bible. Stop coming to church. Stop loving other people. Let sin rule you. Where will you be? How do I know that? I've been there. <laughs> Who hasn't backslidden at some time or another? Pastors do backslide, by the way. They're not all perfect. I'm close, but not quite. <laughs> Don't believe that. <laughs> I was just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> all right. I'm going to give you, this is a bit of a long quote, and I've got quotes this morning, but these are, these just paint the picture. I, I want you to understand this is so important. In a book called Holy Sweat, Sounds good, doesn't it? Tim Hansel um, wrote this. He said, a close friend of mine was asked to go back to his 40-year high school reunion. This sort of hit home for me. I've never been back to my high school reunion. How many of you guys have been back to your high school reunions around here? See, I'm, I'm from Atlanta. For me to go back is a major effort. 
And some of those people I don't want to see anymore. <laughs> I mean, even after high school, that's terrible. I should go back and witness to them. But I've never been to a high school reunion. So this friend of his, he says, for months he saved to take his wife back to the place and the people he left four decades before. The closer the time came for the reunion, the more excited he became, thinking of all the wonderful stories he would hear about the changes and the accomplishments these old friends would tell. One night before he left, he pulled out his old yearbook, read the silly statements and the good wishes for the future that students write to each other. He wondered what old number 86 from his football team had done. He wondered if any others had encountered this Christ who had changed him so profoundly. He even tried to, to guess what some of his friends would look like and what kinds of jobs and families some of these special friends had. The, the day came to leave, and I drove him to the airport. Their energy was almost contagious. I'll pick you up on Sunday evening, and you can tell me about it. I said, have a great time. Sunday evening arrived, and as I watched them get off the plane, this was before TSA, as I watched them get off the plane, my friend seemed almost despondent. I almost didn't want to ask, but finally I said, well, how's the reunion? Tim, the man said, it was one of the saddest experiences of my life. Good grief, I said, more than a little surprised. What happened? It wasn't what happened, but what didn't happen. It has been 40 years, 40 years, and they haven't changed. They'd simply gained weight, changed clothes, and gotten jobs, but they hadn't really changed. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I experienced was maybe one of the most tragic things I, uh, I could ever imagine about life, for reasons I can't fully understand, it seems as though some people choose not to change. There was a long silence as we walked back to the car. On the drive home, he turned to me and said, now listen to this. He, and this is what you should be doing as a congregation. And this is the kind of pastor you should be looking for, if you don't mind me saying. He said, I never, never want that to be said of me, Tim. Tim. Life is too precious, too sacred. Too important. If you ever see me go stagnant like that, I hope you give me a quick, swift kick where I need it, for Christ's sake. I hope you'll love me enough, underline that, I hope you'll love me enough to challenge me to keep growing. Exercise and discipline yourself to godliness before you find yourself backslidden and away from God, one of the ways we exercise ourselves through godliness is community. I'm going to stop there. I have a little bit more, but I'm at the end of my time. But don't let this pass. God's word encourages you and challenges you to exercise yourself in godliness. Lord bless you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the huge challenge it is to draw us closer to yourself so that we might experience you and in that experience all that you have for us. Purpose in life is found in you. This world offers nothing of that. It offers confusion and, and messes and, and un 
tapered or unkept uh, sin and, and messes. God, I pray that you would just um, speak to our heart from this word. Use it to, to encourage us and to challenge us to seek you with all our heart, for there is blessing, there is grace, there is love, there is wonder. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this church. Bless them. Bless them more than they could even imagine or think. In Jesus' name, amen.